0: And this is where you see this kind of um, conservative uh, and even retrograde uh, ideal of masculinity um, become embraced as the ideal of Christian manhood.
1: This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia warsaw poland san francisco california and sydney australia first-time listeners and long-time listeners we are grateful you are here for the conversation we also want to give a special shout out to some of our podcast listener supporters including carson fushi cindy foldendore bill johnson ralph stocks and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of cbf and before we move on we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors the center for congregational health McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers. The Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Kristen Cobus dumay She is the Professor of History and Gender Studies at Calvin University. She's also a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne. Kristen, thank you for joining the conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So I've had the honor of interviewing quite a a few historians uh, as a person who loves history is two degrees in that area and never can put a history book down. However, um, none have had such a fascinating uh, post title as yours. Uh, tell us about your work in history and gender studies.
0: Oh yeah, I um, so I'm. I, I teach courses in U.S. history and uh, recent America. I teach courses in the history of women and gender. I actually went to graduate school just to study uh, religious and intellectual history uh, because I thought that was the history that most mattered. I grew up in a um, kind of a Christian tradition and an intellectual home. And so to me, those, those were the, the things that really drove, um, people. And, uh, my first semester in graduate school, I was introduced to the study of women and gender. Um, and I read one book and it totally, um, It changed my, um, my life, really, Uh, I immediately within the week changed my course of study to include both the study of uh, the history of religion and gender. And I've really um, uh, stayed on that course ever since Um, what I came to see is, it's not just ideas, like kind of pure intellectual history. Uh, that drive people. It's um, um, more intimate uh, uh, conceptions of what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? How does this change over time? How is it connected, not just to religious ideas, but to economic shifts, to race, even to things like foreign policy. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I got a position at Calvin uh, university, uh, a great Christian university where I get to I get to introduce students to these concepts and I get to explore history with them.
1: Well, I don't think now could be any more of an exciting time to um, be a thinker and writer uh, about such things. You know we're we're in this time now where, um, our understanding of, of gender for many people is changing in a, in a positive way, but obviously that means a lot of deconstructing of a lot of misnomers about gender and including gender fluidity. So, you know, when you stepped into this realm, did you anticipate that we would be where we are right now in this moment in history?
0: Uh, no, I, I guess as a historian, I, I, I've never been great about thinking about the future. So you know, I'm usually oriented towards the past and trying to make sense of that. Um, but you know, I've been teaching now for about um, 17 years, and I've really noticed a dramatic change among my students uh, in just the last, maybe, um, maybe seven to 10 years, even five to seven years that my, t- my students now coming in, even they're, they're coming from reformed background, they're coming from evangelical backgrounds. Um, they are much more, um, I guess I'll use the word progressive in their understanding of gender. They're much more, um, comfortable with ideas of, you know, gender fluidity and, and identity and, um, and that, that corresponds to kind of survey data that we see too, that particularly on LGBTQ issues, um, younger evangelicals uh, are are far more progressive than um, their parents or grandparents are. So I've I've definitely seen um, that. What I would say is that in a college classroom, um, some of these ideas that tend to be real, real, you know, hot button issues or flashpoints in the culture wars really aren't. That in in the classroom, I have the luxury of assigning reading, and um, and historical reading tends to complicate our narratives. Wherever you're coming from, you're probably going to learn um, by reading a little bit of history that. Things used to look different than they do now, and that the narratives that you've embraced um, aren't the whole story. And so I find that the classroom is actually a wonderful space to depoliticize some of these really important issues, and that they become much less controversial the more you understand them.
1: Your recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupt a Faith and Fracture a Nation, is being received by many post evangelicals as an inoculation against a ravenous religious virus that we were exposed to in our, in our upbringing. Um, When you wrote this book, were were you anticipating such a a tremendous outpouring of of praise from the book? I mean, I guess I can answer that question because you just said as a historian, you don't predict the future, but (laughs) I mean, when you're writing uh, such a, a fabulous book, did you anticipate it would be received in such a way?
0: I did not anticipate the personal response that the book would garner from so many readers. So, you know, as I was writing this, I felt like it was a big book. I felt like it was really important. I, I it's it's awkward to say that because you're supposed to be really modest um but i really did think that this book answered a lot of questions that people were asking over and over again because they they weren't finding the right answers to so i really did feel like it spoke to our 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 present moment not just in terms of religion but also in terms of the american political landscape so i i had some confidence in the book i thought it would um uh, I, I thought it would have some sort of impact. What I didn't foresee was that it would be so um, enthusiastically embraced, not just among ex-evangelicals, you know, people who've, who've um, distanced themselves from evangelicalism, but especially by evangelicals, by conservative white evangelicals, including many conservative white evangelical men. I did not understand. I didn't foresee how many would um, have come to a place over the last few years where they too understood that something was deeply wrong with their faith communities and that they too were ready to receive a book like this with incredible humility. Um, This is not a gentle book. Uh, and it, I did not write it in a way to woo evangelical readers. I, I think that's quite clear. Um, and so I didn't anticipate that so many white evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals would embrace the book and say, Hey, we, we need to wrestle with this. There's truth here.
1: I would be honest with you. Um, I read the book three times in the first <laughs> sitting and every time I was going through, I was like, I kept looking over my shoulder. Like, what have you? Has she been here my entire life and seen through my eyes the experience I had? And I will also say this. I'm usually not so uh, flippant in how much I praise an author on this book. (laughs) As as a person who loves history, uh, my go-to book to recommend to people on understanding the history of the merging of evangelicalism and the political right uh, was Kevin Cruz's book, Mm -hmm. Um, One Nation Under God. And I have found myself in the last year saying, um, actually there's another one that I really want to recommend. So, you know, but I also know that you were a person who grew up in the evangelical tradition. So how, how difficult was it to unpack much of the history and heritage that you were reared?
0: Mm-hmm. So I grew up, um, a kind of on the edges of evangelicalism in that I, um, I grew up in a small town in Iowa in a Dutch ethnic community, very much a part of the reformed, uh, Community Christian Reformed Church. My dad was a theology professor at the local Christian college, and an ordained minister. And so, I I grew up in this kind of distinctive space where I identified over against evangelicalism. Um, growing up, uh, you know, we were we were distinctive. We were smarter than. <laughs> Than American evangelicals, we were, we were, you know, uh, carrying on this this intellectual heritage from the Dutch Reformed tradition. Um, so I, I wasn't as fully immersed. Um, my religious identity wasn't so tightly linked to evangelicalism. That said, uh, I came to see that I was. Um, um, pretty deeply immersed in the evangelical popular culture, this consumer culture that I write about. So, you know, we had one one bookstore in my small town, and it was a Christian bookstore. I only listened to Christian music growing up. I thought the top forty was sinful. Uh, you know, so I I was I was part of this evangelical consumer culture, even though I didn't fully identify with uh, American evangelicalism so I think that gave me a bit of a critical vantage point where I had a, a, a close enough kind of window onto this culture I had experienced some of it but I didn't have this the same level of baggage necessarily that some people do that I had to really wrestle with to separate myself from this and so I think that was um, it worked it worked for me it, it helped me to Um, to write the book that I ended up writing with both a certain familiarity, but I mean, this is not Uh, the story of my life in its entirety, you know, it's, it's a work of research. I had to learn about a lot of these people. I had to talk to a lot of people to figure out what needed to be in this book and what didn't need to be in this book. So it really is a work of scholarship. Um, But I, I, I had a certain level of, of um, familiarity with some of the characters here. Um, I will say, however, that your response um, is, is one that I, I hear over and over again. I've had people accused me of reading their childhood diaries. Um, and people accuse me of of spying on them for the first 30 years of their life. Um, that, um, and I think that's because this is this is different from a lot of uh, histories of American evangelicalism in that it really does take the popular culture seriously. And so it it centers that, you know, what it is to be an evangelical isn't necessarily um, knowing and ascribing to particular um, doctrinal positions. It is growing up in a home where James Dobson's on the radio every single day, right? Or it's reading Josh Harris, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It's um, these sorts of things that really define uh, who is and who is not an evangelical. And those are the things that just ordinary folks uh, connect to. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's this, this personal response is at least in part because it is a history that describes their ordinary experience as evangelicals.
1: I'm not saying I'm accusing you of reading my diary. I'm just saying like a lot of people (laughs) are. I have been accused. Oh, really? Wow. (laughs) Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, I get these comments all the time. They're great. Yeah.
1: So, you know, everybody's worried, you know, Bill Gates is gonna inject some microchip if they were get the COVID vaccine. You know, let we know that the Dume is the one that actually has put a microchip in our evangelical plans to to figure all this out. So Uh, So I don't want to talk about Trump. I feel like we are continuing to give a narcissistic, pathological liar, um, you know, a platform by talking about him, but Mm -hmm. talking about the movement that got him into office is far more important of a conversation. Mm -hmm. You write about the types of leaders that evangelicals tend to gravitate to, uh, staunch figures of patriarchal masculinity, so-called mavericks that speak the truth, even if it's not politically correct. You wrote evangelicals hadn't betrayed their values. Donald Trump was the culmination of their half century long pursuit of militant Christian masculinity. Take us a little deeper into the historical influence that led evangelicals to, to gravitate to leadership of, of figures that are so apparently a contradiction of the Jesus seen in the Gospels.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the book, I, I really emphasize the, the importance of the Cold War context uh, and this, uh, just as evangelicals, as conservative Protestants are coming together kind of post-fundamentalist um, modernist controversy and uh, really trying to reassert their, their influence on American culture in the 1940s. We find ourselves in the midst of the Cold War and, um, and communism was seen by, by many Americans, but particularly uh, conservative evangelicals as a a, a dire threat because it was anti-god anti-family and anti-american so all these things that uh conservative evangelicals held dear and so they understood that um they as as they understood themselves the most faithful american christians had a, a critical role to play in keeping america christian keeping Americans faithful, and and, in keeping America strong, in defending America. And now at that point, the threat was a military threat. It was, uh, you know, the threat of communist aggression. And so all of these things came together in in terms of needing to be, um, to defend Christian America, and you needed strong men who would, who would fulfill their God-ordained role as protectors. Um, and defenders of faith, family, and nation. Now the thing is in the um, in the 1940s, 1950s, these kind of core values were not that different from those shared by many Americans. This was the consensus era. this was you know um, post-war um, baby boom. And so these kind of traditional family values and this, this um, anti-communist um, uh, kind of sentiment was widespread. And this was right at the time when, when evangelicals were reasserting their influence and the fact that they they shared these values in common with so many other Americans really helped them to do that. And this is where you know, we have Billy Graham in and out of the, the Eisenhower White House and, and things are going great um, from the evangelical perspective. And then the 1960s happened. And that's when um, a lot of Americans start to question some of these these core values. Um, You have the civil rights movement that is disrupting the status quo, particularly for Southern white evangelicals and questioning certain narratives of American goodness, of Christian America. Uh, You have the uh, feminist movement uh, challenging these quote unquote traditional gender roles um, and questioning patriarchy. And then you have the Vietnam war and the anti-war movement, again, uh, questioning American greatness and American goodness. Um, And this is where evangelicals really double down, conservative evangelicals do and reassert these values and um, over against their fellow Americans, right? Here, they're not in the vanguard anymore. They're seeing themselves as this this faithful remnant and and, and part of their role is to um, oppose these forces of feminism and, um, anti-war activists, and in many cases, the civil rights movement. And, and the one thing that kind of the thread that holds all these things together in this era is the assertion of white patriarchal authority. Uh, if you think about it, it, um, uh, it's, uh, in, in terms of, Uh, the authority of of white Christian parents and uh, particularly the patriarch to make decisions for their children. Um, This was the rhetoric you hear against uh, school desegregation efforts. And, um, and then uh, feminism is seen as a threat uh, to American masculinity and um, contributing to the emasculation of American men. And that had dire consequences on the battlefields in Vietnam. And we needed strong men. It was up to Christians to raise strong men into um, uh, who could, who could defend this nation. And this is where you see this kind of um, conservative uh, and even retrograde, uh, ideal of masculinity um, become embraced as the ideal of Christian manhood. And um, not coincidentally, what I noticed looking at these sources is that the heroes, that evangelicals would come to to hold up as ideals of this militant Christian manhood, this warrior masculinity were um, very rarely drawn from the scriptures. Instead, they were drawn from popular culture, um, from Hollywood movies. Uh, And this is where John Wayne comes in. John Wayne becomes the icon of this kind of militant white masculinity um, on screen and off. And then later that gets updated with, with figures like Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart.
1: Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a Certificate in Pastoral Care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The Certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities, it requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu options. Since 2016,
0: CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support.
1: In, in the book, you write about evangelicals that actually spoke out against Donald Trump's rise to power and his marriage with this movement. You, you cited um, folks like Russell Moore, the former president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's, it's worth noting that while Um, you covered some of the backtracking done by Moore after Trump's election. He has ultimately left the SBC as a result of the brutal hell he received from SBC leadership over, you know, not falling in line for, for the goose step. Um, But nevertheless, many prominent evangelicals did speak out against Trump during his 2016 election administration. Mm -hmm. Were, Were you shocked by the backlash that many of these leaders face from once loyal followers and readers and members, and and what does it tell you about the current religious political landscape that evangelicals would rather remain faithful to a political figure and ideals rather than faith leaders?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Was I shocked by uh, the the backlash? Uh, Not really. Uh, And and that's something that I I try to cover in this book. I I try to allow for the diversity within uh, conservative evangelicalism and just looking very carefully for, you know, those voices of resistance. Um, But then I I went a step further. So rather than just saying, see, some evangelicals were against Trump, then I watched and how are those received? And, And then what happened next? And somebody like Russell Moore spoke out boldly. Um, and then he, he, um, he faced enormous backlash and then he really went, went not silent, but very quiet for a very long time. Even as, as we, we now have glimpses into precisely what kind of opposition he continued to face on the inside. And that's not at all surprising. That's exactly what I, I would have, uh, imagined. And, um, what I, what we see, and this is something that I I explore some in the book is, Uh, the, the changing nature of authority within evangelicalism that many um, people who considered themselves evangelical leaders actually didn't have that many followers. And um, one of the the kind of uh, themes that I wrestled with throughout this book and throughout my research was what is mainstream here? What is mainstream evangelicalism? And what is the fringe? What is the extreme? And and that's a a, a thread that I I, um, make visible throughout the book. And I think it applies here too, because I think there were a lot of leaders of traditional evangelical institutions, pastors of churches, you know, institutions like Christianity today, who considered themselves to be really at the center of evangelicalism and not just located at the center, but leading evangelicals. And what the last five years have shown us is that uh, they weren't. They aren't, and and that what we're looking at is a populist movement in many ways, um, and and this is again where where the significance of this uh, evangelical popular culture comes in, that uh, many evangelicals are far more deeply formed by the media they consume than they are by the the words that their local pastor preaches on a Sunday morning far, far more, and they are being influenced by celebrity pastors. They are being influenced by Christian radio, deeply influenced by Christian radio, uh, by Christian publishing. And, uh, also by, uh, uh new sources like, like Fox news and secular talk radio, which isn't exactly secular. There's a lot of overlap there between, uh, you know, some, a place like Fox news and conservative evangelicalism. And so these are the influences that really disciple generations of evangelicals and pastors, um, may themselves be deeply influenced by these sources. Many pastors are, um, but those who are not. Not find it extremely difficult to push back against these populist impulses and I would argue in many cases uh, secularizing impulses within their own circles and what when they do uh, they often find themselves out of a job.
1: So most evangelicals are more likely to get their truth from Tucker Carlson than probably the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Absolutely yep. Um, um, let's talk about the militarization of evangelicals. You, you trace much of this, uh, these warrior motifs and proclivity to endorse political acts of violence to their theological understanding of Jesus' death on the cross. You wrote, When evangelicals define themselves in terms of Christ's atonement or as disciples of a risen Christ, what sort of Jesus are they imagining? Is there a savior of conquering warrior, a man's man who takes no prisoners and wages holy war, Or is he a sacrificial lamb who offers himself up for the restoration of all things? Help us to understand why and how one's answer one, one help us to understand how one might answer this and how that answer might determine um, what it looks like to follow Jesus.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the context for that quote is actually where I'm pushing back against um, many evangelicals themselves and scholars of evangelicalism that insist on defining evangelicalism according to a theological rubric uh, and this is for since you love history i can i can go here this is known as the bebbington quadrilateral right the this four point. Uh, kind of definition or or a list of evangelical distinctives. And so to be an evangelical is, according to this definition, to uphold the authority of the scriptures, uh, also um, crucicentrism or the centrality of the cross, conversionism, this born again experience, and then evangelism or activism acting out of these beliefs. Uh, And and what I um, came to see in my research is that that doesn't really get us very far in understanding contemporary American evangelicalism. Um, because, uh, what we, we need to peel back some layers here and understand what, what, what biblical passages are upheld as authoritative guides for faith and life. Um, what we're going to see is that in um, black Protestant circles, even though the majority of black Protestants can check all those boxes, um, they um uh they don't the vast majority of black protestants don't identify as evangelical because there are some really big differences uh that are at play um so which biblical passages are we looking at same thing when it comes to um uh you know certainly activism um the working out of their faith in in uh in in society and in politics um but also when it comes to who christ is and uh and and so what i i came to see is that um, you know for all of their talk of being bible believing christians this is how many evangelicals self-identify not actually as evangelical just as bible believing christian uh, there are a lot of passages and a lot of words of christ that they are willing to kind of bracket uh, to dismiss, to explain away. Um, so things like love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. Uh, many uh, of the writers who are promoting this militant vision of masculinity and militant conception of Christianity um, just say, uh, uh-uh, you know, you can't teach a boy to become a man if you tell him to turn the other cheek. Uh, you have. Uh, key teachings in the scriptures, you know, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control that are just, uh, essentially feminized. So these are great for the ladies, but you're not going to be a strong man, a strong protector and defender of, of God's truth of faith, family, and nation. If you embrace these values, you know, that's the road to emasculation, um, you know, the beatitudes. And so, um, what happens is, this this uh, warrior masculinity that gets uh you know often inspired by secular sources it gets uh embraced and and packaged and sold as christian masculinity that ends up not just uh, shaping people's conceptions of what it is to be a christian man it ends up Uh, changing conceptions of what Christianity itself is and who Jesus is, so that Jesus becomes a warrior with tattoos down his leg, who's, you know, uh, wielding a bloody sword and charging into battle, and then what it means to follow Christ looks like that.
1: Let's talk about Christian nationalism. In a sense, it is uh, the belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. You argued that this belief is a powerful uh, predicator of intolerance towards um, immigrants, racial minorities, and non-Christians linked to opposition to gay rights and gun control and to support harsher punishments for For criminals, uh, to justification for use of excessive force against Black Americans, law enforcement situations, and and traditionalist uh, gender ideologies. From a historical and theological standpoint, you are absolutely right. However, this statement can create uh, such an entrenchment among those who believe in Christian nationalism that there's no room for healthy dialogue. So How do we talk about these things, especially those that hold these to be true, these values to be true? How do we talk about them in a way that can lead to healthy dialogue?
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because those aren't my arguments as much as, I mean, I am arguing them. I'm, I'm borrowing from um, excellent work that's being done by um, social scientists right now. And, you know, the, the key work here is taking America back for God by Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry. And we were writing our books at the same time. We, we, somehow connected on, 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 Twitter as we were finishing our books, because we kind of saw that we were saying the same things, but I was as a, as a, you know, kind of narrative historian and they had all the data to back it up. So it was this really interesting, um, kind of confluence of our, our disciplines coming together and, and describing the same thing. Um, but how do we have these conversations? It, it's it's really difficult because i mean even now just watching in the last year or two christian nationalism has become uh almost uh, a toxic word in some spaces in conservative spaces right that it will it will shut down a conversation just like uh social justice and became toxic in certain uh circles before that and and now we see you know interesting things happening around uh critical race theory um and so How you have these conversations uh, changes over time, I think. Um, I recently highlighted the work of uh, an earlier generation of evangelical scholars, evangelical historians, um, a a book called um, The Search for Christian America. And it was written by George Marsden and Mark Knoll and uh, Nathan Hatch back in 1983. And they are taking on Christian nationalism, um, already back then. And I think they do so in a, in a really brilliant way. They self-identify as conservative white evangelicals, Uh, they left the white out, but as conservative evangelicals, and they said, we share your concerns. We share your concerns about secularization. We share your concerns about, you know, morality and, and abortion and all of these things. And, um, but by embracing this uncritical mythical sense and historically false sense of Christian America, you are unwittingly contributing to the secularization of our nation. And you are eroding the, um, the power of the faith you are, you are robbing the, the faith of the, the power to critique, Um, our nation. Uh, And, and we need that prophetic critique. And so I I love the argument that, you know, by embracing this false, the mythical sense of Christian America, you are contributing to the secularization of our nation and you're weakening the power of your faith. Now I will say, I think that's a beautiful argument. I think it's true. Um, but they wrote that book in 1983. It made a difference to some people, but it, it was, you know, barely a dent in, in, uh, it clearly, uh, the fact that it still resonates so powerfully today testifies to, um, it's lack of influence more broadly uh, because we are still dealing with the same problems as they were confronting in 1983. Um, and if anything, much more profoundly today. So how will we have those conversations? You know, I think we do have to find that common ground. Uh, we need to find that common theological ground. And then we need, um, and we also need to push for honesty. Uh, so often, you um, I mean, one of the things I've confronted in, in the way that this, my book has been received uh, in, in the year since it's, it's come out, it's been received um, with a sense of shock by many evangelicals. How did we not know this? On the one hand, this is the story of my life. You've been reading my diaries, but I never knew how all these pieces fit together. They didn't understand the broader historical uh, context. And that's because evangelicals have really controlled their own narratives, right? They have presented their histories in the very best light, histories in which white evangelicals are always the good guys. They're always the heroes. Sometimes they were, but often they weren't and we need to have accurate understandings of history. We need truth, and we need to start from a place of truth, and then we can reason together, but right now, it's it's incredibly hard to start from a place of, of truth.
1: Well, let's go right there and take it a little deeper. Um, evangelicalism cannot be separated from a dense history of racism, and going back to the theme of John Wayne within the book, here's a guy that in almost all his films, is the conquering, victorious white hero that defeats the Japanese, American Indians, Mexicans, and, and many more. Help wow. us to understand why John Wayne, and I know this question, I'm ask, even I'm asking this, I'm like, you wrote an entire book about this, but <laughs> so try to answer this, you know, in, in an interview. Help us to understand why John Wayne is such a significant figure for evangelicals and why his on and off-screen racism influenced this movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when I started paying attention to literature on evangelical masculinity, this was in the early 2000s that I I first started um, being curious about this. And I read John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And then I discovered that was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, There were so many copycat books. This was around 2005 or 2006. And so I started reading all of those. And I I quickly came to see how important heroes were, Um, the the masculine hero in in this, this literature, the mythical warrior. And, uh, it didn't take me long to also realize that all of these heroes, all of them were white men. And in more cases than not, they were white men. not set out to write a book about John Wayne. This really isn't a book about John Wayne, uh, but uh, it, it, at a certain point I realized, yeah, this is a thread I can pull through because it demonstrates so many different things. It demonstrates the importance of popular culture, demonstrates the importance uh, or the role that secular culture plays in shaping and infiltrating um, you know, Christian conceptions of, of masculinity and of faithful christianity and um it also um, highlighted the role of race. You know, I, I set out to write a book about gender and I ended up writing a book about race as well. Um, because, um, you know, the ideal Christian man was a white man in this literature and was a white man who would use violence to, to bring order. And, um, and often that violence was meted out against non-white populations. And so I, I just wanted to make that visible because so often in evangelical spaces, race is invisible. Uh, evangelicals have embraced and perpetuated this notion of colorblindness. And, and this was something that came out of the 1960s, after it it, it became um, less palatable to hold explicitly racist views, after many evangelicals saw, okay, there, civil rights, you, you got your civil rights, uh, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, we're good. Um, now let's just go on with things. And um, anybody who said, no, there's still more to be done, was a troublemaker, was um, disruptive. And, and um, many evangelicals really um, perpetuated this notion of colorblind and m- many evangelicals really deeply believe that they are not racist, that they do not hold any personal animosity towards, um, uh, people of other races. And, and yet there's this unwillingness to understand, um, structural racism. There's also an unwillingness simply to take to heart the stories, um, and experiences of their brothers and sisters in Christ who are not white. And, um, so that's one of the things that history can do for us. It can make race visible. It can show, um, how race functioned in uh, conceptions of, uh, or just in family values politics, how race functioned in in terms of, uh, say, law and order politics, in terms of the partisan realignment and uh, conservative evangelicals really building the religious right in the modern Republican Party. And um, that's absolutely critical because if race um, is not visible, it's really hard to talk about it. And it's, it's really hard to examine critically if, um, you know, the, the, uh, policies and allegiances of conservative white evangelicals today actually do align with biblical values and the biblical call for love of neighbor and call to do justice and love kindness. And we need to, we need to know what we're dealing with in order to know, um, um, how we should respond obediently, uh, to God.
1: Toxic masculinity, you know, for those that that grew up in the evangelical tradition, the definition of marriage and gender roles was just as predictable as, you know, churches singing the latest Michael W. Smith or Chris Tomlin song in a contemporary worship service on Sunday morning. There's a cottage industry of warrior motifs for Christian masculinity that you've thoroughly outlined in the book. However... If we set the problematic views of evangelical writers on marriage and gender roles to the side and we picked up scripture instead, the Bible is full of some pretty toxic understanding of gender identity and roles. So how, how do post evangelicals who hold scripture to be sacred use the Bible as a source for understanding gender identity in a healthy way?
0: hmm. You know, I was just reading somebody's tweet yesterday that uh, stuck with me. I don't remember who it was. Sorry, uh, that instead of talking about, you know, biblical marriage, we really need to talk about a Christ centered marriage. And I think that gets to, uh, kind of something essential here. The Bible is filled with all kinds of stories and the Bible, you know, these stories, um, take place against a very patriarchal backdrop and, um, and not, I mean, talk about good guys and bad guys, there are very few purely good guys in the Bible, <laughs> um, but we've, we have Christ, right? And Christ is the center of our faith. And so all of these stories in the Bible really do need to be interpreted uh, in light of the uh, central gospel message in, in, in light of the, the life and work. Of Christ and um, and Jesus model. I mean, if we if we want a pattern, what's interesting is evangelicals just again love their heroes, love their heroes. They need they need to have somebody to model their masculinity after. And so you know, William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. That's you know. Otherwise, what are we going to do? And you know, critics will say, well, well, what about Jesus? Isn't isn't he enough? Isn't he somebody that you can you can you know aspire to or, or that we can learn from? And, um, uh, of course we can't all be as Christ, but we are, we are called to take up our cross and follow Christ. And so I think that, um, that needs to be our starting point. And when I look at, um, uh, the new Testament, when I look at the gospels, what is so revolutionary about Christianity is the figure of Christ and how he absolutely disrupts human notions of what he should be as the Messiah. Um, He absolutely disrupts human understandings of power, right? Christ divests himself of power, offers himself for the salvation of the world. He is the suffering servant, right? He washes his disciples' feet and he continually messes with their understanding of power and hierarchy. To me, that's what's so radical about Christianity. That is what draws me to the faith. And that is what um, really resonates with me spiritually as good and true. And, and that, that really needs to be our starting point. And then all the other biblical narratives need to be interpreted in that light. So you can't just pick a random guy in the Bible and say, yeah, you should be like him. You know, you might end up being like Esau or, um, you know, uh, 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 David also somewhat problematic. So, uh, you know, we really have to keep our, our, um, our theology centered on Christ, and our um, our own faith centered in Christ.
1: There's so many questions I still want to get to, so I'll I'll, I'll try to wrap up with just this one. Um, you you did extensive research and trying to uncover 75 year history of evangelicalism. What moment, what story, what person made you cringe the
0: most? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay, I can't, I can't narrow it down to just one. Um, you know, uh, honestly, I, uh, the most important man in this story, I think is James Dobson. Uh, and it's so it's remarkable to me to read histories of evangelicalism where he gets a paragraph and that's it. Um, again, if you, if you see evangelicalism as a, um, uh, a popular culture as much as a formal theology, if not more, um, Dobson has to, has to play a central central role. And when you look at somebody like Dobson, you see that, um, uh, you know, any narrative that suggests that evangelicalism has been hijacked by politics, uh, you know, uh, because they're listening to Tucker Carlson or watching Fox news, you, you know, um, th- that, that doesn't get the story right. Evangelicals built this from the ground up. And somebody like Dobson is right at that nexus of, uh, you know, religion and politics. Uh, but other cringe, oh man, I, um, you know, somebody like Jerry Boykin, I think is, 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 is worth exploring. You know, this member of the military who's been deeply influenced by conservative evangelical warrior culture and what he does both inside the military and what he does within American evangelicalism, I think is worth reflecting on. Um, and, and it kind of surprises me sometimes that the, The chapters that deal with this, uh, with the military actually get a little less attention uh, when I do interviews, than I think maybe they ought to, because um, to me, I think that that's absolutely critical to understanding um, uh, recent American history. Um, so, so there's plenty of, of, of cringey figures there. Oh, but I mean, then of course there's, there's Doug Wilson and there's Doug Phillips, and there's every guy who appears in that last chapter. So it's, it's impossible to narrow it down.
1: <laughs> you know, the, the history as it's laid out is cringeworthy, maybe vomit inducing um, as to how this movement has done such harm while claiming to be doing so much good. Um, you know, so I imagine you know, as you're thoroughly walking through this narrative and this movement, you know, there's so many festering wounds that you have to, to point out and to show. Okay. I lied. One last question, you know, of all <laughs> the things you wrote about, what didn't make it into the book?
0: Mm. Um, so my original manuscript was 60,000 words over the word limit. <laughs> so there's a lot that ended up being cut. Um, I would say the part that, that grieves me most, maybe, uh, maybe I should have pushed harder for on that word count uh, was I, I had a much longer section on Francis Schaefer originally. Um, but it was really hard to do justice to Francis Schaefer in, um, in a, the, a short amount of space. And so he's, he's a figure that um, just, he doesn't change this narrative at all. And that's why I ended up cutting him because I was desperate and I just needed to keep moving the story along, but he helps us understand the politicization, um, of, um, of evangelicalism and the, the embrace of this kind of us versus them mentality, the central of sex and gender that emerges. He's right, right at the center of that. And he really gets short shrift here. And I, I, um, um, you know people are saying oh you need to come out with a um, uh, the director's cut and uh, you know, there's there's a lot a lot that I still have in my files that that could be added here I know my editor too more than once his comment on you know th- through revisions was do we really need to hear about all of these guys Kristen it <laughs> Every time I kind of push back, like, yeah, we kind of do. Okay, I'll take another two or three out of this chapter. Uh, but you know that that's it's not just that I'm trying to throw a bunch of evidence at the reader. It really is because that's how I what evangelicalism is. Evangelicalism is a series, it, you know, it's it's built by these networks and alliances. And it isn't just one person, but it's how are all of these figures linked. And, and that's where we can see, you know, how, how are the, the, the people on the fringes, the Doug Wilson's, the Bill Gothard's. How are they actually not that fringe? Because they're they they're tightly connected to uh, organizations or figures very close to the center, and that's the story that I needed to tell. So it's filled with names. I find that evangelical readers have no problem with the number of names in it. In fact, they want more. Why didn't you include this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy? And what about this book and that book? Right. Um, whereas you know, p- people who are coming from outside this tradition, it's it's a lot of names, and that yeah, you know, that was where my editor was. coming. There's a lot of people here to keep track of. And so, you know, for evangelical readers, uh, they know all these people. And so it's very easy for them to keep track of them. But um, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, one of the challenges here. But Francis Schaefer should have a little bit more space, I think. So
1: in a sense, you're you're like the J. Edgar Hoover of yeah. evangelicalism. You've got all these files. <laughs> that, just, is, you know.
0: <laughs> that is it's not untrue at all. You know, what it um I, I wondered sometimes, and I, I actually expected a bit more pushback uh from some of these guys and uh, from folks in certain institutions. And you know, I, I wondered, do they know? They probably know that I have file upon file of their quotes, uh, their, you know, their actions, their words. And uh, yeah, I do. And, and, and huge shout out to my research assistants. I did not compile all of uh, this research um, on my own. I had three fabulous student research assistants who helped, uh, helped build this, this, uh, this collection. And so I, yes, I am sitting on a lot of additional information. And every once in a while, I do pull out when I see somebody tweet about something, I think, let me just see what I've got on him. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot to work with here if I need to use it. So.
1: You, you already have part two ready. And this one should be, um, like Jesus and Clint Eastwood or, you yes. know, something along those lines, like, you know, the next era of, of, you know, a white supremacist in film. Um,
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I am, nope. I am, I'm, I am getting so tired of talking about white evangelical masculinity. I have to confess. So, you know, any future iterations, I will happily hand off to whoever wants to write them. Uh, no, I'm, I'm actually, uh, switching gears ever so slightly. And I'm looking at, uh, for my next book, White Christian Femininity, and uh, looking at how ideals of cultural ideals of Christian womanhood uh, interact with uh, things like post-feminism, neoliberalism, and white supremacy.
1: Mm. Sounds like uh, I'll be blowing up your email to get you on the podcast when that book comes out. (laughs)
0: It'll be a little bit We're we're thick and in the research uh, mode right now, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. That one's called live, laugh, love, and it'll be out in a couple of years.
1: Awesome. Well, if you want to stay connected with Kristen, visit her website, kristendume.com. Read her limited character musings on social media. Uh, The book is Jesus and John Wayne. Purchase it wherever books are sold. Um, Kristen, what, what an honor to have you on the podcast and, and thank you for your willingness to methodically uncover the problematic history of toxic gender ideologies and racism of a movement that's long overdue for a reckoning, but also calling us to the goodness and love of Jesus that beckons us to love one another in the way that we love ourselves.
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, Theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.